Hey everyone, you're listening to the Arts Fuse Presents The Short Fuse Podcast. I am your host, Deanna Costa. Join me on an auditory exploration of our independent magazine on the show where we bring you the latest and greatest from our arts criticism community. On today's episode, we'll be featuring a short recap of my most recent article in the magazine. We're going to get into some interesting artists on the scene today. We will also be speaking with our fellow arts contributor, Glenn Rifkin, who is usually not known for his arts coverage. He's really more of a business journalist, but we had an enlightening conversation. He is a wonderful guy, and I felt lucky to even be talking to him, so hopefully you'll be feeling pretty lucky to even have a chance to hear him. We are recording from the fabulous studios here at SMC, that is the Somerville Media Center. We will also be including music in today's episode. We'll have a feature by Juniper. They were kind enough to lend us some of their tunes to play, so we will have that coming up for you as well. kind of start your relationship with the fuse in relation to the fact that you went to BU or, or did you know Bill or how, how did that all work out? Uh, yeah, not, not, nothing to do with BU. I, I was um, uh, in a group of friends with a guy named Ken Bader and Lisa Mullins who's on WBUR okay. and Bill Marks was in that group of friends and we used to get together for these dinners, we call them the Manly Men Dinners, Steaks <laughs> at Frank, uh, Frank's Steakhouse in Cambridge, and so I got to know Bill at these dinners, and then, um, you know, and he knew that I was a writer, and he was starting to, he was getting arts views underway, and um, at some point he just said, you know, when are you going to start writing for me? And I said, well, <laughs> um, First of all, I'm not an entertainment writer or a critic, so right. he said that that doesn't matter. Right. <laughs> so, so that's uh, that was that was enough to because it certainly wasn't for the money. So right. And uh, I think maybe my first response was, "You can't afford me." But, uh, <laughs> I mean, you'd probably persuasive. be right. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's a labor of love for sure. Yeah. Oh, that's really cool, though, because I. I was put in touch with um, Bill through one of my old BU professors, so that's that's the only reason why I asked. But that's very interesting. So you started out kind of at the beginning of everything then. No, I, I was actually looking into that today because I thought you might ask me. Um, yeah. I did my first piece for him in 2012. Oh, okay. And, and, the, and he had started Arts Fuse, he told me, 12 years ago. So I yeah. was... I came along, you know, five years into it. I got you. So it was not, I was not one of the originals. And, um, but still, I've been doing it for seven years, so that counts for something. Yeah, I'd say quite a lot. Do, do you find that it is um, a different shift for you because you're used to doing like business and tech-related articles? And lately you've been doing obituaries, right? Is it... Right. kind of all the same for you or do you find like you have to change your writing methods at all well i have to change my writing style for sure right um but the reason i even do it like i said isn't for the money so i do it because it's a fun 
uh, opportunity to just, you know, stretch um, my wings a little bit in a different direction and to take a look at something that I was always fascinated by. I'm a huge um, fan of entertainment, of movies, of theater, of music, uh, of the arts, and, you know, the idea that I could actually write about these things was kind of always in the back of my mind. Um, it, it just, there was just no opportunity. I wasn't going to call the Boston Globe and say, hey, you know, I'd like to be in your art staff, and I have never written a single thing about arts, but right. I'm sure you'd be, be happy to hire me. So this was just sort of an avenue into this kind of world that um, that I'd always been fascinated by, but it was just a chance to try it out, and that's why I did it. Oh, that's really awesome! So, did you, um, when you were done with journalism school, did you get into business writing, um, tech writing on purpose, or did it was it kind of similar that it all just sort of happened that way? I graduated in 1975 into one of the worst recessions ever. Oh, wow. It was, you know, until, like, say, the recession of 2008, which was certainly the worst recession ever. Um, This one was pretty bad, and I had reasons why I needed to stay in Boston. So I was already limiting my ability to get a job somewhere. And Boston, like any other media market, had just become really tight. And... Uh, it was really impossible to get. What I really wanted was to get a job on the newspaper and not necessarily writing about business. Um, actually, the thing that I loved the most was sports, and so I kind of thought maybe that could be my, an avenue. But um, there was there were no jobs to be had, even on small dailies out in the suburbs. And so I started to freelance, and my first byline was in was then the Boston Phoenix, and I don't know if you even have heard of that. I have, yeah, I know they recent, well, kind of recently closed down, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah and they had been, they had been, uh, you know, ironically in this conversation, they were the sort of entertainment newspaper for the city, you know, and they, right. they specialized, it was like a 19, late 1960s, early 70s kind of phenomenon, there was the Boston Phoenix, there was the real paper in Cambridge, and you know, all these sort of free papers that were mostly focused on covering the music scene and the art scene, but they also covered other things, and I ended up writing for them. They paid almost nothing. It was a real tough way to make a living, but I didn't really even consider business journalism until later um, when I got a job in at a newspaper called Computer World in 1983 that was in the high-tech space, and uh, I also had no interest in technology, so these were things that I kind of fell into. I see. And, and you know, when you when there's so little, so few jobs available, sometimes you know necessity has to be the mother of invention. And I mm-hmm. started writing about tech, and I found out you know this was a really exciting place to be. Things were happening. Yeah. And I was meeting Bill Gates and Steve Jobs and writing about them and their companies, and so that was kind of the segue to business because I was not a tech person. I didn't want to know how computers worked. I just wanted to know how the people behaved and how the companies right. did. Right. So that, that kind of segues into um, the book that you put out last year, right? Future Forward. 
which is the full title is The Leadership Lessons from Patrick McGovern, the visionary who circled the globe and built a tech media empire. And that was your boss at Computer World, right? Exactly. Yeah. That's right. That's, that is a good segue. I, I started working there. Pat McGovern was the founder and chairman of the company. So you couldn't work there without knowing him and knowing right. about him. And I got to be relatively close with him as much as a low-level employee could. And, you know, we stayed in touch over the years. And um, sadly, when he died in 2014, um, you know, everyone who knew him was so bereft because he was this wonderful guy, an unusual CEO who actually cared very much about his employees. Right. And so people were really sad when he died. And um, three years later, his son came to me um, saying, you know, he wanted to have a book written to sort oh. of honor his father's legacy. And... He had heard my name mentioned several times as the right person to do it, and because I'd already written some books, a right. lot of books actually. Yeah, about and, twelve, right? Yeah, yeah. and I had, um, and I'd worked there, and I knew his dad, so I had sort of all the credentials that you might need. And he, so he and I worked, um, agreed to work together, and I wrote this book about uh, the leadership lessons that his father left behind, and and that's how that book came about. Oh, that's incredible. I was actually going to ask, you know, how the concept sort of came together, but that that is a, a very sweet story that his son sort of came to you. And did, did he um, give you a good review when the book was all done? Was he happy with it? Oh, yeah, he's been, he's been very happy with it. And uh, the response to it has been great. We've got a really nice reaction, great reviews. And we got some pretty impressive people, too give us, you know, recommendations like Bill Gates and um, uh, who else is on there? We the, the, the foreword is written by Mark Benioff, who is one of the big stars of technology today. He runs Salesforce.com. Um, and there was just a lot of great people who weighed in. And, you know, it was more a testament to Pat McGovern than right, to me because right. they just, people just admired him so much. But he, his son and I had a great relationship working on this and we've become friends from it, which I consider one of the best takeaways. Yeah, that that is really amazing. I mean, I, I was reading a lot about it today to prepare for us talking and it it is just very interesting from, I guess, my point of view, being um, on the, the other side of the sort of internet boom where you know, I grew up around personal computers, and I, I don't remember a time without at least dial-up, you know, and it's it's crazy to me to, um, to see how, one thing I read in your writing was that Pat sort of uh, would give a lot of capital to anyone that had a good idea and could make a good argument for that idea, and those conversations would sort of offshoot into different publications and things like I read the the one thing about how the Four Dummies series came about and how he right. was kind of iffy on that, but then it ended up being a great success. And it, it was it was very, um, yeah, interesting to me because now I see that there's this sort of shift into online and the those sort of, I guess, resources aren't as plentiful <laughs> in um, print as they used to be. So I was kind of curious, like, do you have any thoughts on that? Do you think that maybe um, there could be another future Pat McGovern CEO, but 
their their uh, media empire will be online only, or do you think people will always have a desire for magazines? You know, it would be because of my whole background and my age, my you know experience growing up. I can, I'm so biased toward print. I still get the right. morning newspaper delivered to my door because I like to read it that way. But you know, honestly, I don't see that happening. I think eventually everything will be digital, and the and the, the delivery mechanism will be probably something even you can't imagine right. you know, fifty years from now. Like, right. You know, the fact that you guys your age all actually read everything on their phones is kind of mind-boggling, and I've even started to do that, which is crazy because I can barely see the thing, but, <laughs> yeah, you know, the, the need for, for print and for dead trees to be turned into magazines and newspapers is clearly, you know, going the way of the, uh, the buggy whip, mm-hmm. and uh, there's, you know, it's slower going than a lot of people thought. A lot of people thought by now all of those things would be gone, and they're right. not. But I don't think it would be, I wouldn't put my money into a print future if that's what I was investing in. And, uh, but the opportunity, and the key word is content. You know, right. What the world will always need is content. The world always wants stories to be told. And the better stories, the more people will want to read them. And how they read them and how they listen to them, that will change. And that's one of the geniuses of Pat McGovern. He, he got that way, way back before most people did. And, you know, he never got married to one technology because he saw how fast they change. So, you know, if you're willing to say, okay, well, what's the really key thing here? What's so important here? And if it's the content, then that's what you focus your strength on. That's what you want to know that you have at the core of your business. And I think, yeah, absolutely there are really smart young entrepreneurs being born as we sit here and speak mm-hmm. and then one day they'll find some avenue to to providing this kind of content um, you know to the masses and, and uh, how it's delivered you know maybe it'll be like this 3D hologram and somebody <laughs> right. it'll be you reading it to yourself because you don't want to sit holding a newspaper and uh, it's just hard to say the, you know the problem which we don't want to get into here because it'll be another hour <laughs> is is you know who who monitors that content and how do we Absolutely. ensure that something um, as basic but as crucial as the truth it, you know continues to exist because the truth right now is under assault and mm-hmm. and that's where technology and social media and all of these platforms have really created danger in my opinion so all of those things are happening however you know you flash back to arts views and there's always going to be people with a desire to, to understand, to read about, to learn um, about these various disciplines. And in right. Arthur's case, that would be, you know, entertainment and the arts. And I think that's what Bill tapped into. And that's what's made it so impressive that it's still around and actually thriving. And, um, you know, he's got some really great people writing for Arts Views now. I can tell you, when I started, uh, you know, we were kind of bare bones, and most of the major publications still had lots of arts people on their staffs. Right. So, so somebody like me, I could see a movie that just came out on a Friday, and I'd say to Bill, you know, did anybody review this? And he'd say, no, go for it. So I could, you know, review it that night or the next day. And now, if I don't get on a 
be like two weeks before it's released, somebody else is going to have reviewed it. And so I've done a, a lot fewer movie reviews lately right. just for that reason. Um, you know, I, if you look at my body of work on Arts Views, I, I was laughing because I've, I've done <laughs> restaurant reviews, I've done yeah. theater, musicals, I've done books and movies and, um, you know, just kind of all over the place. I even did a piece on on a comic convention that was held in Boston, um, a Star Trek convention. So there's just, you know, it, there was an opportunity to really do a variety of things. Let's get to what you all really came for here, which is the coming attractions. Let's see what's going on. Alright, so let's see. The Museum of Fine Arts Boston is hitting us with some more great content. This time we've got Making Waves, the Art of Cinematic Sound. You can catch that up to November 20th. So you got teeny bit of time left. Let's see what it's about. This documentary focuses on the first generation of professional sound designers who mapped films with sound before a frame was ever shot. Making Waves is about the evolution of film technology, yet the key to the documentary's appeal is that it revels in the holistic aesthetic side of technology, not just buttons and dials and gizmos, but technology as an expression of something human. Making Waves is a brisk 94 minutes, the last half hour of which is a quick study primer on the categories of movie sound. Two more days to get to the Boston Jewish Film Festival. The BJFF presents a rich festival of screenings celebrating the richness of the Jewish experience through film and media. Many of the movies have multiple screening and appearances by writers and directors. You can go to our website in Our Coming Attractions to see a complete list of films. At the Boston Museum of Fine Arts, but a little bit more time to catch this one, starting on November 10th, running through the 30th, the film called Mr. Klein. A recent Anthony Lane review of a restoration of this 1976 Joseph Losey film in The New Yorker made me mighty curious, writes our editor Bill Marks. Restored to its clammy glory, the movie stars Elaine Delon and shows the director as a connoisseur of dread as he dissects the anti-Semitism of occupied France. The plot sounds as if this is a memorably lethal tale of doubles that fuses Nabokov's despair with Kafka. The Institute of Contemporary Art Boston is featuring When Home Won't Let You Stay, Migration Through Contemporary Art. As I mentioned earlier in the episode, today we'll be featuring the musical stylings of a college-based local band called Juniper. This is their song, Here for the First Time. (laughs) 
Thanks again to Juniper for letting us play their awesome song here for the first time. That will not be the last time we hear from them. Uh, not to toot my own horn, everybody, but that is exactly what I'm about to do. <laughs> This month, I released an article about the new hip-hop singles that came out in October. It, it was one hell of a journey, so th this is what I wrote. Listen, listen in, in case you don't like reading my writing. This month's focus has to be on R&B and rap, given that jam after jam has been released throughout October. Danny Brown's new album is the latest installment in a maturing career. The title track shines among a great bunch of songs. Gangstar dropped a second single from their new album, released on November 1st. This track mainly consists of posthumous rhymes by the late great guru. It has generated plenty of excitement among fans who are anticipating one of the best yet. Frank Ocean continues to tease his following with a single titled DHL, its dreamy beat may or may not be a sign of a larger project to come. Travis Scott, amid highly publicized personal problems, dropped highest in the room, which is best described as typical Travis at his best. Last, and definitely least, there's a song from Kanye's highly anticipated Jesus is King album. Halloween has just passed, but Follow God could be best described as a bargain bin candy. The music is well produced, so it is worth noting, 
but it's no fault full-sized Hershey bar. I stand by that, and I would love, love for someone to send me some hate mail somehow coming up with a at least semi-coherent argument as to why Jesus is king is not complete trash, because... Mm, okay, maybe complete is a little far, but from my listening, which I've listened to it several times, this is absolutely Kanye's worst album, and he's had some weird stuff going on, so that's really saying something. It just sounds like he's trying to do Chance the Rapper's choir rap thing, you know, spiritual, and it's just falling flat. It's just so empty, and for something that was pushed back like a year and a half to come out this fake sounding, like, closed on Sunday, you my Chick-fil-A, that I'm supposed to say that that's art? That is not, no. That is a joke. It's very funny. It's a good little, like, rhyme, but you're, you're making an album called Jesus is King, and you want me to take it seriously, and then you're saying stuff like that. Like, that's, like, poop diddy scoop level stuff. Like, how am I supposed to take that seriously? Not every song is meant to be serious, but if you're gonna claim that you're having this great, like, born-again revelation kind of thing, and that this is all for God and God's plan and all this, and then you're just gonna be out here closed on Sunday, you my Chick-fil-A. Like, no. No. Put the gram away. Like, no. What does any of this have to do with God? It's just, I did have a few good things to say about the song Follow God, so I will add that. That is what the whole album should have been. You know, the beat is really solid. The lyrics, pretty tight. He has a solid storyline. He's talking about arguing with his father, and they're complaining back and forth that the other is not being Christ-like. That is that is something where, okay, I can see this middle ground of people that are religious and people that appreciate rap. They can relate to this kind of a thing. It's like, you know, you're t- having a tough time with the morals of the religion. This, that's, this is all relevant stuff. Somebody who does know their truth and is living it loud and proud is Danny Brown. Well, that was the short of it. If you'd like to read more by our incredible contributors... You can find us online at artsfuse.org. If you're looking for more pod content, you can check us out on social media at The Short Fuse Podcast Facebook. We are also on Twitter at The Short Fuse Pod. We have a Patreon under construction, but on the way. And if you'd like to hear us on a different platform than the one you're listening to now, you can find us on Simplecast, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. If you have any comments, questions, suggestions, complaints, you can email me at the shortfusepodcast at gmail.com. I'd also like to add, as we get deeper into the season and we start bringing up conversations about articles in the fuse, if you have anything that you'd like to say, maybe a letter to the podcast editor, feel free to drop that in that the shortfusepodcast at gmail because I would be more than happy to read your comments on the air, assuming that they are at least mildly pleasant, you know, y'all can't go too damn deep. Yeah, we'd love to hear from you.
thanks again for listening in next week we have a pretty cool show coming up for you we are going to be getting together again with our friends matt and lucas they're gonna be talking harold bloom he passed away unfortunately and matt wrote a pretty cool article about his passing his work what it all means we'll give you that chat we'll give you a couple of new articles in the fuse and uh yeah we'll have some new music so stay tuned we'll see you next time